on the final full day of the Insight Meditation Retreat that I attended a number of years ago, I had a chance to have an interview with the senior teacher of the retreat, Tara Brock. Some of you may know, if you've been around here for a while, that she is pretty much my favorite teacher. And I went into that meeting, that interview, like a total fanboy. <laughs> what I wanted to say is, oh my God, you're awesome. You're tremendous. Everything you write is gospel. I want to tattoo it all over my body so I never forget it. You're incredible. I can't believe I'm sitting here with you. <laughs> the level of uncoolness that it is to be a fanboy of a contemplative spirituality teacher the gauge doesn't even go to that level of uncoolness. Now, I didn't end up saying all of that. I think I just said some vague thing about how grateful I was, which was true to be there with her. And we talked about the practice a little bit. I could have and should have used that time not to be a fanboy, but actually to explore the fact that I felt so inhibited about being a fanboy. That would have been valuable. This interview with uh, teachers on the retreat is a regular part of insight meditation retreats. This was an eight day retreat I was on. A few days earlier than the interview I had with Tara, she told a story during a talk one night, a Dharma talk, as it's called in her tradition, about another interview that she did some years before. It was with a man named Jacob, who was in his 70s. And who, like Tara, was a psychologist and also a mindfulness teacher with one other piece. Jacob was slowly losing his sense of himself because of steadily advancing Alzheimer's disease. During their conversation, their interview, Tara was really struck by how honest, how open, how clear, even how good humored Jacob was about what was happening to him. He was losing his mind. He said, I think it's because I don't really feel like anything is wrong. I have tremendous grief. Sadness about what I'm losing and the people I'm losing. At times, tremendous fear. But this feels like real life. This feels like real life. My life. He went on to tell a story to dig deeper into how he found himself at this time in his life. And he related that about six months before he had been preparing to give a lecture about Buddhism, about contemplative practice before a group that he'd been with before. And just as he got to the center of the stage and was about to offer his words, his mind drew a total blank. He could not remember what he was there to say. And not just that, he couldn't remember where he was or anything of what he was doing there. He felt panic surge within him. He felt fear. He felt horror recoiling within him. And so what he did is he put his hands together and he lowered his eyes. And he just started naming what was coming up for him. Fear, embarrassment, a sense of dying. What am I losing? 
And as he continued to offer this clear sense of his being lost, he also noticed that some of his fear started to diminish and started to shift. And so he started to share that as well, too. Shoulder softening. Fear diminishing in my chest. More peaceful. A little more calm. And then he said, I, I apologize. And he lifted his eyes to look at all the people there. And he saw that everyone was held in rapt attention. And most of them were crying. And then one of the students there raised her hand and she said, This is the deepest teaching that we have ever received here. This is the deepest teaching we've received here. Jacob's story reminds me of this image from today's movie, today's spirit flicks. That's Roger Ebert, who many of you know, towards the end of his life. Roger Ebert, who had salivary and thyroid cancer, that took his jaw from him. And this was on the cover of Esquire magazine. His intent behind this, we hear in his words, was this. Make your heart your face. This is me. This is what I'm going through. This was his real life. Now, this movie, which I absolutely adored, is the story of all of Roger Ebert's life up until the end of that life from cancer in 2013. We see the young Roger intellectually gifted, a strong advocate for racial justice in the 1960s, funny, engaging, witty. We also see him for who he also was. A drunk, profoundly his younger self, awfully sexist, tremendously egotistical. We see him grow into a more mature person, into someone who became wildly popular and shared insightful film criticism with a whole bunch of people on TV. He invented a whole genre that didn't exist before him. We see that he let go of some of his immature ways, got sober also got to a place in which he intentionally started to share the stories, the films of people who otherwise might not be known by mainstream society. And he lifted those people up and gave them a platform and invited other people to learn their stories as filmmakers. We see in this movie nothing less than the development and the growth of a human soul. And yes, this is from the reflection at the end of his life. He's working hard. He's getting treatment. He's doing everything he can to stay here, to be with the ones he loves and those who love him and to continue to write, even to the point where his voice becomes his blog, because at the end of his life, he cannot speak anymore. You've seen this movie. You see, and some of the first time seeing it, it is painful, it's difficult, recoil a little bit. We see that he has no more jaw. Just the lower part of his face. It's just 
just his lower lip and the flesh just hanging there. Hopefully we can look at him because he's sharing himself with us. We know how this story ends. It ends with him dying. Now, as I was watching this beautiful movie, so heartful, I also recognized that I was aware of a certain level of irony in my watching. So what is Roger Ebert most known for? <laughs> two thumbs up. Some, they ever do sideways? I don't think so. Maybe if they're really ambivalent. Or two thumbs down. I like it. I approve. And by the way, if you haven't seen the movie, he and Gene Siskel loved each other and really hated each other. <laughs> it's like Lennon and McCartney. There's like this combustible force in their partnership that made them so great. And it strikes me that, you know, the currency of our time is this. <laughs> I like it. Facebook, I approve. And yeah, I know people mean Facebook likes as not necessarily I like it like it, but I recognize what you're saying. and It's a value. But, you know, I know when I post something, I want to see how many likes I get, how many people are approving. Come on. You feel the same thing, too, right? Be honest. Right. OK. Ours is a state, an age in which a lot of us are focused on approval and presenting a good face and being liked. But the irony of this movie, this guy who gave us this in so many ways, is that really life at its deepest level is beyond like. Our lives really begin, our lives really deepen when we get beyond like. When we recognize that there is a realm of the soul, of the spirit, in which we can practice an acceptance that is not contingent upon approval. We don't have to approve of everything that's going on within us or around us, but we can still accept it, acknowledge it, see what's here, what's really going on. This is a very old teaching. It's a teaching from one of our great teachers, Thoreau, who said in his little experiment up there in Walden Pond 175 years ago, he said, I went to live there because if life was going to turn out to be something mean, I wanted to know it for its meanness, really get to know its meanness. And if life was something sublime, I wanted to be able to live in all that sublimity. What he saw was that life is both. This is what Tara Brock teaches. This is what Roger Ebert teaches. This is what Jacob taught. That if we can open to life in its fullness... And this is what was shared from us earlier today from Jessica. Opening to the full complexity of our lives, bigger even than our preference. Approval. Maybe not. But acceptance, yes. What happens then in that space? We can go grow big, bold, loving hearts. I can take life in and share life forth and actually live with depth. So there are a lot of teachers I've had who have shown me this, and I just named a few of them. And one of my most special teachers of this sense 
of deep acceptance of life beyond like was a person who the last time I saw them did not even speak a word. Not one single word. This was my dad's cousin's wife. Her name was Estelle. And the story I'm going to share with you happened in winter of 1992-1993. It was in the few weeks, the months, after my own mother had dropped dead, suddenly, unexpectedly, unnecessarily, in her mid-40s. And none of us were prepared for it. Estelle had ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. She was not able to make it to the funeral. But it was still really important to her that she come and spend some time visiting with our family. And so on a very, very bleak, cold, drizzly kind of day when you want to pull the covers up over your head, a winter day in 92, 93, that winter, she and her husband, Phil, came and spent some time with our grief-stricken family. And maybe you might know this if you've been in a house or a home of mourning before, that very often in the first few weeks after, all kinds of people around, there's lots of food. It's not denial, it's just kind of softening the blow. But then eventually, the people will tend to go away. And we're there with our grief. This is how Phil and Estelle entered. Estelle could barely make it up the steps. And she had totally lost the power of speech the power of her voice to the disease which was slowly taking everything from her. We sat in our living room, and Phil asked a lot of questions about how our family was doing, and I really can't remember our answers other than sadness and tears. But what I do remember is this. Estelle sitting on the edge of her seat with eyes Wide open. Almost as if she was touching us with her eyes. And blinking, not looking away. The power of that gaze has never left me. And I think like the only thing I can tell you to let you know how powerful it was, it was, it was a weird version of this. Lord of the Rings, <laughs> Sauron, the unblinking eye. <laughs> of course, that's an eye of malevolence. <laughs> Estelle's eyes were like that. Eyes of complete empathy, not looking away. Tears the entire time streaming down her cheeks. I remember in her right hand, she held a tissue that a couple times she, with all the effort in the world, held up to her eye to wipe away the tears. But it was so much effort, eventually she just held the tissue in her trembling hand and didn't use it anymore. Estelle knew. She saw. She did not look away. Now, Estelle did not want ALS, obviously. 
Estelle didn't want to be seeing our grief. She didn't want us to be so heartbroken. She didn't want my mom, my dad's wife, to be gone. She loved her. But those were the facts that could not be changed. And so she just looked and looked and looked. And facing it and facing us, she offered one of the most beautiful experiences of communion I have ever had in my life. Of course, the irony is this, is that she who could no longer speak, who had no voice, was able to say something with her eyes that pierced our aloneness. And so many people, well-intentioned friends I learned in the years to come, who were full of voices, who still could speak, because, and maybe we've been these people before, we've been on the receiving end of this, because they wanted the right thing to say or they didn't want the wrong thing to come out of their mouths, ended up saying nothing at all and keeping themselves silent. And so keeping their distance from us. And so kept us in our isolation. Estelle knew something, saw something, and would not look away with those tremendous eyes of empathy. It's just sounds. No big deal. We can take it in and still be here. It's actually a really good practice with what I'm talking about today, right? It's all of life. And yeah, thanks for closing the door, whoever's doing that. But there's always going to be some sounds. There's always going to be some noise. There's always something barging in, right? Life does not go according to our plan. That's the moment we get beyond like. There's lots of teachers who tell us this. This past week, I heard another favorite teacher. This guy, a funny man. Stephen Colbert, his new show coming up. It's an amazing portrait of the creative artist. I want to encourage you to read it when you get a chance. Now, if you know anything about Stephen Colbert, you know that trauma and tragedy is a part of his life. He lost his father and two of his older brothers in the same plane crash. And one of the things the interviewer was reflecting on him with is that he doesn't seem embittered doesn't seem consumed by anger, by the unfairness of life, and life is unfair. And Colbert said, you know what? I'm mystified by this suffering, all this suffering. That's sacred, he says, which is not the same thing as say, it's good or it's a gift from God or any of that kind of stuff. He's just saying it's sacred. We should pay attention to it. He said, I'm mystified by it, but I'm not angry about it, what happened to me. And then he goes on to share these words. This might be why you don't see me as someone angry and working out my demons on stage. It's that I love the thing that I most wish had not happened. I'll repeat that. It's that I love the thing that I most wish had not happened. He's not saying God brought down the airplane. He's not saying the universe did this for a reason. I think he's saying something more simple and more profound. 
the truth of my father, my brother's lives. I love them. This is what happened to them, and I'm not going to look away. Of course he wished it wouldn't have happened. There's a tendency when we think about acceptance, we think it's passivity. We think it's, well, then we'll just be fatalistic. Stuff happens, and we can stop caring. Stephen Colbert is not a member of a group that says, well, you know, airplanes fall from the sky.com. He's not saying we shouldn't do everything to keep airplanes from falling from the sky. So much of the suffering in our lives we can do something about. And at the same time, in this imperfect universe in which death is the fact of life, in which things are always changing, something is not going to happen according to the plan that we had for ourselves and it's the moments like that that count can we open our hearts in that space can we do our own version of just what jacob did that rather than running away rather than inventing excuses rather than fleeing from it naming it open-heartedly honestly openly and sharing ourselves from that place those are the moments we open to life beyond like And we can take life whole. And in that limitless soul space, we grow hearts that can connect with every single piece of who we are. It's like a song by Beck that I hadn't heard in a couple years this past week. What can happen there is we can have a heart like a drum keeping time with everyone. We can have a heart like a drum keeping time with everyone. This ultimately is what Roger Ebert's life was like. And these are the first words I'm going to read you from this entire movie, his own, read by his voice with his voice while he still had a voice. He said, we're all born with a certain package where we were born, who we were born as, how we were raised. And we're kind of stuck inside that person. And the purpose of civilization and growth is to be able to reach out and empathize with other people. And for me, the movies have always been like a machine that generates empathy. I love that. That's why I love movies. That's why I do this series. These stories are a machine that generates empathy. Movies let you understand a little bit more about different hopes, aspirations, dreams, and fears. It helps us to identify with the people with whom we're sharing this journey who are along with us different tradition than Roger Ebert's own. There's a Yiddish proverb that goes simply like this. Why did God create humanity? Because God loves stories. All of them. Your story. My story. Our story. Not the edited version that makes us look good. (laughs) All of our stories. The whole thing, just what Jessica opened up this service with today, to love the story even when we don't like it, that's to grow a big heart. And instead of always thinking we need to give life the thumbs up, we can instead, maybe, and this can be a little practice you can take with you. The next time someone asks you, is this to your liking? Is this cappuccino to your liking? Is this meal to your liking? Is this life to your liking? It's not a bad question. It's 
fine question, but maybe you can ask yourself another question. And it sounds odd, but so did the first person who asked this to your liking. Is this to your loving? This, whatever the this is that is going on, are you able to connect with it? So that we can, instead of just thinking, we have to give life the thumbs up for life to have meaning. And instead, we can not just do this, but do this. Meet life with an open hand and an open heart and reach out and reach in. Be graspable and be touched. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Limitless spirit. If you truly are limitless. And we are a part of you, a part of everything that is then our lives too are limitless. Our hearts are limitless. Sorrow sometimes limitless. Joy sometimes limitless. May our lives take on not the likeness of like, but the likeness of limitlessness. That we are a part of everything that is and it is a part of us. And the deepest, most profound truth of this life is the unalterable connection that will not go away. That holds us, that lets us know above all else our lives are the shape of belovedness. May our lives take on the shape of that loving. Amen.